Hello and welcome back to Catching Up on Capitol Hill, a series in which we discuss the latest in tax legislation and in tax policy. I'm your host, John Gimigliano. Well, folks, we are back and with a new episode, and this one addresses the question I think we've been asked more than any other since President Biden releases American Families Plan. That question, if the capital gains rate goes up, what's the effective date? The obvious answer, at least for now, is we just don't know. So yeah, this question is a toughie for a lot of reasons, but boy, there are so many angles to explore and today we'll do what we can. To help us consider these many complexities, we are joined by our expert guests, Carol Coolish and Tom Stout. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get right into it. Carol, I'm gonna start with you. You know, if you recall, we did two separate episodes on then candidate Biden's capital gains proposals last fall. So obviously we had a lot to say back then, but suddenly this is what everybody wants to talk about again. So can you remind us exactly what has the president told us about his intentions on taxing capital gains? First of all, let me say that what he's told us has been in the form of a speech to the American public that was accompanied by a fact sheet. It's all at an incredibly high level. It's not in tax technical terms. It's just very high level telling the American people what his plans are. And in his American families plan, his administration has indicated that they are proposing to increase the tax rate for capital gains and qualified dividends to 39.6% for households making over 1 million. The 39.6% is also what he's talking about increasing the top individual income tax rate to before it would otherwise revert to that rate in the future. But, you know, a few things to note. So he's talking about equalizing the capital gains and ordinary income rates. But, you know, obviously all of these details could change. Plus, we'll be getting more information conceivably in the Treasury description of the administration's budget proposals. But the things like the amount of the rate increase, the thresholds, all of those could change as Congress considers a package. They may want to tinker with things, make their own changes to things because it's a high level thing. There's no effective date that's been mentioned by the administration yet. And I also should mention there's somewhat of a, I'm going to call it a companion proposal. It's a related proposal also in his American Families Plan, which would be to end the step up of basis at death for gains in excess of one million or two and a half million per couple when combined with existing real estate exemptions. And, and I'm quoting from what their fact sheet says, making sure the gains are taxed if the property is not donated to charity with protection so that family-owned businesses and farms will not have to pay taxes when given to heirs who continue to run the business. So it seems to be contemplating that in conjunction with raising the capital gains rate, they would be taxing gains at death, except for in some cases, you know, you have to meet a certain threshold. Again, the thresholds could change if properties not donate to charity. And politically, they probably do need to provide protections to the family-owned businesses and farms since there's likely to be and already has been some pushback in those areas from people who've expressed concerns. And I say that's related because it's somewhat of a backstop to increasing the capital gains rate. I suspect it's intended to deal with the fact that if you increase the rate significantly, you can also decrease realizations because the JCT models take into account behavior. And the notion is that if you increase the rate, you may have people hold on to stuff longer. And I suspect in part the theory behind the second piece of this and it may have independent reasons for it as well. But in part, some of the notion behind it is that, well, maybe people wouldn't be inclined to hold on to stuff indefinitely if they know that at death, it's going to be taxed. It's not going to just go on to their heirs. 
without getting a step up without having to pay tax. Don't know how, you know, there, there are some situations where people might continue to hold on to it if the rate's high anyway, but I do think that this provision is intended to go hand in hand with the proposed increasing tax rate for cap gains. So one question on all that, that's a lot, and boy, it's a pretty dramatic proposal, but is there anything new in there that we did not get from candidate Biden for all the discussions around what just came out? Was there anything that was different that we did not see from the candidate, or was this just carrying over his campaign proposal? It's pretty much the campaign proposal, but I will say ending the step-up basis at death, there is a little bit more meat on the bones there in terms of the thresholds and exceptions if it's donated to charity and the mention of reference to family-owned businesses and farms when they're continuing to run the business. So there's a little bit more detail, but at least to me, it wasn't surprising in light of the campaign proposals that had been made. One other question before I turn to you, Tom. The whole basis step-up thing is complex. Exactly. Look, I think you could read his proposal a couple of different ways, but they clearly are looking to do something there. But one other thing that at various points we've questioned, I'm still not sure we have an answer to, is does his proposal to raise the rate, does it include the 3.8% net investment tax included therein, or does that still come on top of the rate that the president is proposing? Do we know? I don't think we know for sure, because as I said, there's not a lot of technical detail. I think you could infer perhaps that it's on top of the 3.8 because they don't talk about changing the 3.8, but they don't address that explicitly. And maybe we'll get more detail on that when we see this green book I was mentioning. And, and the green book, incidentally, latest word is that it may come out the week before Memorial Day. So we may get some more details then. Yeah, I sort of read it as being plus the 3.8%, and we could all be wrong, right? But that would get us to, what, 43.4% or something all in, which, at least to me, I had understood the campaign proposals as being 39.6% all in, so inclusive of the 3.8%, but it may still end up being that way. We'll have to wait till we get the Green Book. Okay, so that's a reminder of what the president has said he wants to do on capital gains, a pretty dramatic increase. Now, coming back to our question for today, Tom, which is when, you know, we've assumed, I think a lot of people have assumed throughout, as we discussed all of the Biden proposals, you know, the corporate rate increase, the other changes to individual tax, et cetera, we'd sort of just defaulted to January 1, 2022 is our effective date. Are there any reasons why in this case, they might not choose that date? Well, there are some reasons that they might not. Congress generally doesn't like retroactive tax increases, except in cases where there's some sort of perceived abuse or, you know, sort of pre-change planning, which could be an issue here. And Congress certainly knows how to do retroactive tax increases. They've done it before. They did some major changes back in 1993, Clinton administration, and the Supreme Court upheld those retroactive changes in the Carlton case, and that's you know following a long line of Supreme Court cases where the Supreme Court has consistently upheld retroactive tax increases. They just say taxpayers don't have some sort of intrinsic right in a certain level of taxation. There was a case back in the 1920s where the Supreme Court held a retroactive estate tax change uh, was unconstitutional, but it went back 12 years so there's been you know, some sort of general thought that at least one year back is okay. And there were some special considerations around those 1993 retroactive increases, and you know, mainly around the deficits that had caused an increase in the national debt of about 60% over the preceding five or six years, ironically, to about 50% of GDP, about half of what it is today. Yeah, how quaint. Um, <laughs> and yeah, very quaint. Uh, we're not so concerned about that at this point. 
Carol mentioned the related issue of the taxation of capital gains at death, whether treating that as a realization event. And it may be worth noting that a prominent Senate Democrat, Chris Van Holland, did float a discussion draft of legislation to do that, a very complicated, long piece of legislation, pretty well thought out. And he was explicitly proposing to make that retroactive to January 1st, 2021, presumably to prevent planning that might be done if there was a prospective effective date. So, you know, probably a step beyond capital gains planning and selling assets, but uh, nonetheless probably worth noting. So can be done. They've done it before. No special indication they're going to do it here, but uh, it's possible. Well, I, I understand that they can do it, right? I mean, the 1993 precedent looms large, although I, I think it's slightly irrelevant this year because of the way it played out in 93, but fair enough. Uh, and I, I mean that broadly, right? Corporate rate and other things. But let's just come back to the capital gains then. So if I understand what you're saying, Tom, is let's just say this law were enacted October 1st, okay? Random date. October 1st of this year, signed into law, new higher capital gains rate. And if the effective date of the higher capital gains rate was January 1, 2022, you're saying Congress would not like, or they may not like the idea of me or you or others selling their capital assets between now and January 1st to take advantage of the current law. Is that it? And if so, what is it that we don't like about that? Well, there are a couple of things they might not like about it. I mean, one is that it might be viewed as a kind of avoidance of a increase that they think is appropriate. You know, there's a lot of talk about you know making the tax system more fair and treating capital gains the same way wage income is treated. Allowing taxpayers a couple of months to avoid that might be something that they didn't like. It also, at least potentially, could have some sort of market effect if there was a lot of dumping on the market. Uh, we haven't seen that in some of the past changes, but you know they haven't been of this magnitude where we're almost doubling the, the tax. I mean, whether that would cause a lot of capital assets to be, especially financial assets, to be dumped on the market, potentially affect the Dow averages or something that might be viewed as negative, uh, I guess, is another possibility. Exactly. Okay. Very helpful. Thank you. So that, I think, puts it in the right context that there are reasons why Congress might choose to pick an earlier date than in my scenario, right? January 1, 2022. Okay, perfect. So now, Carol, back to you then. Let's assume for the moment we're convinced we don't want to have a prospective date because of the concerns that Tom outlined. What are our options in terms of picking earlier dates? I guess January 1 is one date. Is that what we're talking about? Or do you think there's something else is more likely? Let me go back for a second and then I'll, I, I promise I'll answer that particular question. But I just wanted to throw a marker out there that doing a retroactive rate increase does have political baggage associated with it. And despite the fact that there may be some Democrats who think that it's inappropriate for people to sell assets sooner in order to get current rates, there's also likely to be some Democrats who are of the view that selling your assets to take advantage of what rates are in the code as current law right now is not abusive. And some of those might have political concerns with doing something that could be characterized as retroactive. And given the tight nature of the closeness of the margins in the House, I think Democrats, assuming Republicans aren't going to be supportive of this, that Democrats could only lose three votes and they've got some moderates who are going to be in tough races in 2022 that could swing either way. And in the Senate, if you don't get any Republican support, you have to get every Senate Democrat on board. You know, the political baggage 
could make it more difficult, despite the fact that some Democrats might view retroactivity as appropriate. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I just wanted to throw that out as a marker. John, you had asked about what other dates might be appropriate. Yeah, you're right. They could go back to 2021. But I think that would be really hard politically for a number of Democrats. They could do something more like, you know, akin to a date of announcement or date of committee markup that there could be maybe when Ways and Means drops its bill, it puts an effective date in there. And maybe it could say, okay, this is going to apply to realizations after today's date. It could be something akin to that or, you know, some sort of joint announcement from the Senate, from the Democratic chairs of tax writing committees in the House and Senate. So there are other dates that they could use other than a prospective date, such as realizations after date of announcement or even tax years beginning after 2021. Yeah, one of the interesting things about that, because I agree with you, Carol, like, you know, the, our possible dates are date of committee action, date of release of text, you know, announcement of the committee, date of enactment. And the funny thing is those dates could keep shifting throughout the course of the year, right? So the House could have a particular date, pass it through the House with that date, then the Senate could pick up legislation substitute a new date, which is date of committee action, and the date could keep slipping further and further into the year. But I guess in all those instances, they would have the intended effect, I think, of what you were talking about, Tom, which is tamping down selling in advance of that higher rate, because I'd have to at least assume the possibility that the announced dates were going to stick, right? Right. So, Tom, back to you then. Does the historical record on capital gains rate changes tell us anything at all helpful about what Congress might do? Or do you think each one of those prior rate changes in capital gains is so uniquely specific to that particular circumstance that isn't that relevant this year? There's some suggestions. There have been a number of capital gains rate cuts that have been retroactive, usually back at the beginning of the year. And of course, that's different from a political standpoint in that people don't complain so much about tax cuts. Right. Um, Congress loves to give retroactive tax cuts. It's yeah. retroactive tax increases that are always harder. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but Congress usually doesn't go there just for the sake of doing that. You know, one of the primary reasons for making the cuts retroactive and announcing them that way is to avoid market impact. You know, the opposite of the increase impact. This would be if you announce you're going to reduce rates beginning January 1st of next year, you may freeze the market. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why things like bond provisions usually have immediate effective dates so is to avoid, you know, having the market stall while people are waiting for the change that's beneficial. So, you know, there is some market concern there. It's a different market concern, but, you know, it is a market concern. So there's something there. You know, there's sort of a spectrum in, in terms of what you consider undesirable avoidance from cases like the 2004 any inversion legislation that was retroactive, that was passed in 2004, was retroactive back to 2003, which was the date I think the first bill was introduced that was specifically designed to freeze what were then viewed as abusive transactions, although truth is there were avoidance transactions. There was nothing illegal about an inversion. There was a flood of pharmaceutical companies going offshore, and in fact, the attitude toward those kinds of inversions had shifted from first being a public embarrassment and then becoming sort of a shareholder necessity. People were demanding that their companies be taken offshore to avoid U.S. tax. You know, that's sort of an extreme case. I don't think capital asset sales to avoid an increase would be viewed as, as abusive as that, at least politically, but there is that element of it that's still there. The one other thing I think worth noting, particularly since you know, Carol mentioned the Green Book, back in the 2016 budget, uh, Obama had proposed a small increase in, in capital gains taxes. 
And the green book, when it came out, uh, had a prospective effective date tacked onto it. And that was only about a three and a half percent increase. So, you know, it wouldn't be something that necessarily would drive the market, like doubling the rate. But I think it was interesting that, you know, they had a prospective effective date in the green book, which isn't definitive in terms of what they would actually expect from legislation, since that's generally what Treasury does when it does its green books and describes budget proposals. But, you know, it, it is there and might tell you that, you know, you don't can't necessarily count on the green book as being definitive either on, in terms of what the effective date might be. Yep, that's true. Although I would argue, I guess we could argue that few green books are going to be as impactful as this one, right? Few green books are dropped right into the middle of a major tax negotiation as this one is. So in the case of the Obama green books and others, those were sort of aspirational suggestions that maybe someday Congress will take this up. There was not necessarily a reason to you know, voice a strong view on the effective date. This year, it could be different. I'm not saying we will see an effective date from the Department of Treasury, but if there was ever going to be a time to express an opinion, I guess it would be this one. I guess other examples are, I think it was at the end of 2012, we had an increase in the capital gains rate at the expiration of the Bush tax cuts, where the rate went up for wealthier earners. That was prospective, but you know, I think it's fair to say, eh, kind of apples and oranges, right? We were dealing with an expiring provision inside the Bush tax cuts and maybe did not have the same effect on people that you might have otherwise had. You know, look, we've done the research and we've looked back over the years, decades in the past, and where we've seen the possibility of different uses of earlier effective dates, although I'm not sure how relevant a precedent for the Hoover administration would be in this context. Look, there's just so many variables here. It's just going to be a really hard one to read, I think, until we actually see it. So, Carol, let me come back to you with maybe something we can answer. Now, let's just talk about revenue estimates. I know this is a hard one because revenue estimates are incredibly complicated in terms of how they assumed. You referenced what Joint Committee often assumes as it relates to capital gains rates earlier. But is there anything we know about how these various effective date options, retroactive, mid-year, prospective, might be viewed or influence the amount of revenue raised in the revenue estimates that we might see associated with the capital gains rate increase? Well, not definitively, but I think we can speculate, do a little informed speculation. You know, they do take into account behavioral impacts. And as, as Tom was saying, you know, the concern is whether if you have a prospective effective date, there could be some shifting, some acceleration of gains to the current rate that would otherwise have taken place after the rates go up. And I think that, you know, let, let's just say, for example, ways and means marks up a bill and increases capital gains rate and proposes an effective date as of the date of committee action or the committee release of its marks. So they propose a retroactive effective date. That could prevent some of the shifting that Tom was talking about, some potential shifting of people from accelerating realizations of gain to take advantage of the current lower rate relative to the possibility of a higher rate. So that might raise more revenue than if Ways and Means said instead that the increase would be effective say, as of the date of enactment or as of 2022, if the bill's enacted in 2021, since the prospective date, that future date could allow some acceleration of realizations. So there could be an impact in the score. They might raise more revenue if they have this immediate or retroactive effective date than a prospective one. But it's not clear how significant that would be in terms of the 10-year window total, you know, what the amount of money raised by a capital gains rate increase. You know, there, there may be cases where some accelerations already have taken place because 
people have known about the Biden proposal since the uh, campaign. And once it was clear that Congress was going to be Democrat, people were, you know, thinking, hey, if I'm thinking of selling something, maybe I should do it sooner rather than later. Some of those people already have sold. So, and there, there may be other people who just hold on to stuff that they otherwise might have sold. So I don't know how significant it would be. We'll have to wait to see what JCT actually estimates when they, they look at the numbers and look at what actually happens and you know, exactly what the timing is of, of congressional action, you know, all those things could come into play. And, and it may even depend on the particular details of the legislation. But I do think that there's a decent chance that you get some more revenue from having an earlier effective date than a later one. It's interesting. Some have speculated that a prospective date would do exactly what Tom suggested, which it could cause many people to sell urgently and quickly, and that that would create a surge of capital gains revenue. And I think what I'm hearing you say, if I'm correct, is joint committee would not score that effect of driving all that revenue, which could show up in the 10-year window, as actually raising more in that scenario. Are you saying no, that they, you don't think that's how it would work? I mean, look, this is definitely complicated stuff. And I don't think how everything will come out in the wash is entirely clear. Let me try to take this step by step. So as a general matter, with a proposed capital gains rate increase, JCT would be expected to take into account the extent to which that rate increase might reduce realization activity overall during the 10-year budget window. And the impact on realization activity is likely to be affected by the size of the rate increase. So as a general matter, JCT takes into account the impact of the rate change on realization activity. Okay. So now we're layering on the additional question of how might the effective date affect the 10-year score? And in essence, what I think you're asking is, if there's a prospective effective date that gives people more time to sell at the current law rates, might there be significantly more realizations overall than if the date were immediate or retroactive? So I think the real question here could boil down to this. To what extent would some of these realizations have taken place in the 10-year window anyway, in the absence of a rate increase? To the extent JCT thinks that could be the case, some of those realizations you're talking about would have happened in the window anyway. And, and that might mean that absent any further behavioral changes, the prospective date that gives more time to sell at current law rates could lose some revenue or raise less revenue relative to an immediate or retroactive effective date because of the rate differential. But as I said, we also know a capital gains rate increase can mean some people hold on to assets longer. So you have competing effects. And depending on how the overall legislation is structured and the size of the increase, it's certainly possible there could be scenarios where a prospective effective date might trigger realizations that might not otherwise occur during the window given the law change, which is, I think is a scenario you were talking about, John, where tax writers might view a prospective date as preferable from a scoring perspective. So unfortunately, it's complicated, and it just depends a lot on the details of the legislation and how the effects balance out. Well, thanks for that, Carol. But I guess the big message is here, it is definitely very complicated in terms of what the revenue effects will be. Well, I guess that's all for today. Imparting just a few thoughts on this whole question of effective dates. I thought Tom made some good points as to why some in Congress might seek to impose an immediate 
rather than a prospective enactment date on the capital gains rate, but maybe just a few counterpoints to support the rationale for a prospective date. First of all, the notion that a prospective date would cause market disruption, that isn't necessarily obvious to me. To start with, of course, not all capital assets are stock, and many aren't at all liquid. I mean, real estate, closely held businesses, and so on. A surge in sales of those assets even if it were possible in this very compressed time window we're talking about, that's a big if. Those sales wouldn't necessarily have an impact on the stock market. And even as it relates to the stock market itself, ample research shows that only about 25% of corporate stock is held by taxable accounts. That suggests 75% of stock ownership is less sensitive to the tax rate on capital gains. I think that reality, to a certain degree, mutes the possibility of significant negative market reaction. Next, I think you have to consider the objectives of the holder of the appreciated capital assets, even if it's a taxable asset holder, because some are in it for the long run, and they could easily decide that their after-tax returns are higher in holding than in selling. And of course, that decision depends on one's investment horizon, assumptions about appreciation, and so on. So I think it's just too simplistic to assume higher taxes will drive everyone to sell. Next. Let's address the idea that a prospective effective date gives wealthy asset holders a break. I mean, why should we assume that? If it's true that a prospective capital gains date does lead to a higher revenue score from the Joint Committee of Taxation, as Carol just suggested, is it at least possible? Well, then doesn't that by definition mean it's a bigger tax increase on those very people? No, you say, because in that scenario, we would allow people in the right circumstances to sell assets they weren't otherwise planning to part with. And that's sort of exactly my point. To pretend that forcing people to sell assets they didn't really want to sell, that that is somehow a picnic for the seller, well, that just doesn't make sense either. Now, look, I know there are good counter counterpoints to my counterpoints, but I think the argument I'm trying to make here is that it's not an open and shut case that an earlier effective date is necessarily a good idea. And that's why I said at the beginning of this episode in asking the question of what the effective date was going to be, I think I said, we just don't know. We don't. And I suggest you be wary of anybody telling you that they do know. With that, thanks again for tuning in to Catching Up on Capitol Hill. Please don't forget to submit your questions, your comments, and suggestions to our inbox. Take care, and I hope to see you soon.